My name's Andrew Conrad, in case you haven't met me yet. I'm the pastor here, one of the pastors, and uh, it would be great to meet you uh, at some point, so please introduce yourself to me. Um, we today start a new series for the summer in the book of First Thessalonians and then in Second Thessalonians as well. Let me give you a little bit of the setting for this book before we dive into reading the text. The historical setting is that Paul, the Apostle Paul, who writes this book to the Thessalonians, along with Timothy and Silas, two of his co-workers, travel on what is called Paul's second missionary journey. So this is the second time he has left from Israel to go out and spread the good news through Asia Minor, okay, through modern-day Turkey. This occurred around 49 AD. The events of this are recorded in Acts chapter 17, if you want to look at that, where they go to Thessalonica and where many Jews and Gentiles come to believe in Jesus as their Savior and Lord. However, they have a problem. The Jewish opponents don't like it, and so they stir up rioters against them, and they go in search of them to drag them before the city officials. Not finding them, they find Jason, the man whose house they were staying in, and they grab him along with some other people who got converted and drag them before the city officials and charge them with sedition against Caesar because they are claiming there is a new king who is divine and his name is Jesus. Of course, that doesn't go well. And so what happens is it forces the apostles, uh, Paul and, and then Timothy and Silas as well, to leave prematurely. And so they leave the area just after three weeks of being there. But Paul is really unsettled by that with all these new believers. And so a little bit later, he sends Timothy back to them to check on them while he goes on elsewhere. Timothy catches up to him later in Corinth, reports back, hey, Paul, this is how they're doing. In response to that, Paul writes this letter the letter, the first letter to the Christians, the church back in Thessalonica. And before we dive in there, I want us to observe some themes from it. And, and even the, will you put the artwork back up, the graphic for the series? So thanks to Jarrett for creating this, Jarrett Michael. Um, but this artwork uh, is appropriate. It, the series is called Holy Living with Future Hope. And the graphic even demonstrates sort of what this series is going to be about and some of the key themes in it. That is that Paul is going to give us instruction about what holy living looks like, but he's going to do that with a window to future hope that we have, the door, the pathway that we go through for this future hope. And so on this journey through life, what Paul is going to do is encourage them in holy living with future hope and encourage their faithfulness, reminding them of something that is critically important. In fact, it is so critically important that without this thing, they will neither have holy living nor future hope. What is that thing? Look for it as you follow along with me and we read 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. This is the word of God. Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, 
For you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Spirit of the living God, I pray that you'll bless the reading of your word, which is holy and true. It is as relevant today as it was thousands of years ago when it was written. And so we pray that you would use it to open our eyes, to soften our hearts, and to guide our way in life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. She asked me, how do I know if I'm a Christian? How do I know if I'm a Christian? She, like so many others, wondered if her faith was genuine in the face of the opposition she received from friends and also personal failure. Paul wrote this letter to people with similar questions, similar life stories. New Christians who are facing opposition, facing some personal failure that he instructs them about. Some of their friends have died already in just the short amount of time that it's been since Paul has left. In waiting for Jesus to return, perhaps they are wondering, how long can I last if some have already died? A question maybe that they're asking a question that you should ask yourself, that I should ask, is how do I know if this new faith is genuine? How do I know if I am chosen, like it said? How do I know if I am loved by God? How do I know? I don't know if you noticed what was critically important in there. And maybe it's not super obvious, so I'll give you a hint. We like to say around here, the blank changes everything. The gospel. What was critically important, what Paul starts with to remind them of everything that's going to guide them in their holy living with future hope is the anchor of the gospel. That's what they must know. It's what they must remember. And it's what you and I must know as a follower of Jesus. That's how we know if we're followers of Jesus is if we believe the gospel. And you may be thinking, well, what if I'm not a believer? What if I'm not sure? What if I'm curious? Maybe I'm skeptical. I don't know. I'm intrigued. What, what about me? You're, you're talking to people if they know. Well, for a moment, understand this, that even if you don't yet believe, if you consider yourself, I'm not a follower of Jesus, part of the reason you're not a follower of Jesus is because you already have some idea of what you think a Christian is, some idea of what you think the gospel is. And part of the reason you might not want to follow Jesus is because you think that, and then you're like, I don't want to do that. But are you thinking of the right thing? Is your perception of the gospel accurate? Is your perception of Christians accurate or what it means to be a Christian? And so this is for all of us, whether you're a Christian or not. How do we know that we're followers of Jesus? Well, as I said, it's if you believe the gospel. And there's two main points I want to talk about with you today. The first one is this. You know that you are a follower of Jesus if you have welcomed the message of the gospel. That's what we were told in verse 6, that they welcomed the message of the gospel. 
In verse 5, we get further insight into that. And I want to show you that verse, if you could put that on the screen for me. Notice what it says. How did the gospel come to them? It came to them not simply with words, but also with power, right? Both in words and in power. It comes to them with words, and the word of God comes to them to teach them what the gospel is. That is, if we were to look at Paul's teachings and everything that Jesus taught, we could say this about the gospel. The gospel is this, that God created the world good, humans rebelled, bringing chaos into the world, and God wouldn't allow that injustice and that evil and that suffering to be the final word and destroy his good creation. So God sent his son into the world to be the savior of the world, to live the perfect life that you and I could never live, to die the death that you and I deserved so that we might be able to be right with God. Jesus will return and he will bring final justice and restore paradise. This is the gospel. And your problem in this big story is that you are the problem. Your problem is you are the problem. My problem is I'm the problem. Because we're part of this story. To, I could say it this way. You are both a product of the rebellion of humanity against God and you are a part of that rebellion. You are both born into sin and a sinner if we were to use biblical language in the theological terms. Without Jesus, you have no hope of salvation. With Jesus, it's guaranteed. Without Jesus, no hope. With Jesus, total hope. Like the kids said, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Right? If you got Jesus, then God is pleased. If you don't, problem. That's the message. That's the word that they bring. You cannot earn salvation, you can't buy it, you can't bargain for it, and you certainly don't deserve it. Because you and I are part of the problem. The good news in really short words is, is this, and some of you will think that this is from Tim Keller, which it is, but it's not originally with him. It's from Jack Miller, uh, a mentor of Tim Keller's. The good news is that you're far worse than you ever thought you were. You're like, why is that good news? It's good news because God's grace is far greater than you ever dreamed possible. Yeah, the truth, the good news is there's bad news and good news. You're the problem and it's worse than you thought. But the good news is God is so much greater than that and his grace is so much better that it overcomes that. You're loved more than you could dream possible in Jesus. So the question to you is, do I welcome this message? One of the ways I'm going to know that I'm a follower of Jesus as if I welcome this message. But it's not just the words, right? It was the other part of that verse in 5 was, was the power. It comes with power. That is the missionaries, Paul and Timothy and others, who are coming to preach, preach with power. They believe what they are proclaiming to them and saying that this is the truth. And it comes powerfully to them. And the power was not only in their faith and their love and their hope for life, but it was a divine power that was working through them, accompanying their preaching so that people would hear and believe the gospel. In other words, it was the Spirit of God who was at work through them to make known the mystery of God's plan of salvation. So, you have to welcome the message of the gospel both the message that comes in word and the message that is powerful. Powerful to change lives, which leads to my second point. And this is the point we're going to spend the most time on today. 
The second point is this. If you have been awakened, is that if you have been awakened by the power of the gospel, you know you are a follower of Jesus. Right? So the first was, you know you're a follower of Jesus if you have welcomed the message of gospel, but also the second one is if you've been awakened by the power of the gospel. This is important for you to recognize. This is, there's this transition that happens. It's, the gospel is, when it comes to you with power, it's not just that you are searching, you're beginning to understand and grasp the message and go, oh, that, that's what Christianity is. Oh, that's what grace means. Though you're doing that, that grasping, what's happening when the power comes is it's not just that you are reaching out to try to grasp something, it's that something is reaching out and grabbing you. It's like this gravitational pull that God is at work and he's coming after you and grabbing you and the spirit of God is pulling you in. It's like you've been caught in a tractor beam and you're just being like pulled in and you're like zoned in. You're like, yeah, I'm searching and like you're getting pulled at the same time. And this part of the gospel is so critical because while you must welcome the message, which is the information that we need, The power of the gospel is the transformation that is required. You see, the gospel isn't simply information that you get in your head and go, now I know something. See, this is one of the problems we have in society across the board, is we get overloaded with information, and we go, now I know. Yeah, but what do you do about it? How does it transform your life? Right? And so the gospel has to come and actually transform your life. We see this again in verse 5, if you'll put verse um, 5 up again. It says that the Spirit brought conviction, the Holy Spirit, and deep conviction, right? With the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. The Holy Spirit comes with power and brings conviction on the people. The gospel is the power. You might say that's not what it says. It says the gospel came with power, not that it is power, and it came with the Spirit. Yes, that's true, but Paul will write later to the people of Rome in chapter 1, verse 16, and he will say this, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation that brings salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is the power because it's not only the message, it is the good news that the Holy Spirit uses powerfully to change your life. That's great hope for me as a preacher because otherwise I wouldn't be very good. Right? If the, if the Holy Spirit isn't at work, if the gospel doesn't have power, like, I don't have the power to change you. Like, I'm, I'm not that good. I don't have that kind of power. If I could just come up and thump you in the head and you would magically get converted to bees, I'd just walk around all day slapping people in the head. That's not the way it works. The Spirit of God has to move in your heart and in your life. And that's good news for me. It's good news because I believe that it is true, but I also see the evidence of God's spirit at work in you, in people around us, in the the globe. And so one of the things that happens is when you begin searching for God, it, it might look like, hey, you've asked a friend. I don't know, I'm curious. Maybe you went to a college ministry, an RUF or whatever crew, something like that. Maybe you've gone to Young Life. Maybe you've come to church. Maybe you've you got a book. You're like, I don't know, I'm going to research it. And I'm getting a book and I'm reading about it. And you're searching for God and you're thinking, I've got to explore this more. And that's great. It's fantastic. You should keep doing that. But one of the things that you will begin to realize or come to realize is that while you are going about doing all this searching, is that the Spirit of God was already coming after you. You see, one great hope 
of knowing you are a Christian is the simple truth that God chose to love you first. It's not all on your shoulders about why I searched and I studied and I love Jesus. You should, but he's loved you first. That is a great hope that we have. Becoming a Christian is like being born again. It's what Jesus says in John chapter 3, talking to the man. He says, you must be born again, right? What, what, what does that mean? Well, think about that. What does it mean? Think pregnancy, right? Life begins at conception, okay? So there's a little life growing inside of a mother's womb. The baby begins to develop inside the womb. At some point when labor pains for, you know, normally at, at around nine months, when labor pains occur, the baby's ready to arrive into the world, take its breath, and breathe on its own and grow into, a maturity, into maturity. And spiritual life is similar. It's the spirit that gives life and nurtures it until the point of labor when you come out, start looking around and breathing. And you grow. And you might say, well, that's not fair because the spirit did it and I don't have a part in it. Yeah, well, is it not fair that your mom gave you life? This is just the way things work, Right? Somebody can initiate something and bring something about, and that doesn't deny you your responsibility, your part in it. This is what God does. God always comes to us first. He's the first actor. He's the one who created the world. He's the one who entered the world for us. It is his spirit who comes to us with power. That's important for several reasons. Many that could be explained throughout the New Testament, but there's a few more things we need to look at today. And let me, ask, let me introduce this evidence in this way to say, ask this question. Is the power of transformation just getting a feeling and a conviction? Like, oh yeah, I feel like God's doing something. I'm, I'm convicted about this. Is that just what it is? Well, it is that, but it's more than that. Because what Paul does is he gives at least four pieces of evidence of the transforming power of the Spirit in your life. And so looking at these four pieces of evidence will help you to know, oh yeah, I see parts of that in my life. This is what it means to be a Christian. Or if you're seeking God and you're curious, this, these may be things you're starting to get convicted about. Yeah, I need to do that. Yeah, I think that's an important thing. And those are all indicators that the Spirit is pulling you, pulling you toward him. Here's the first of these evidences. The first one is this. You walk away from idols to walk in the ways of Jesus. You walk away from idols in order to walk in the ways of Jesus. We see this in verse 9. You could put that on the screen. For they themselves report that this is what you guys are doing. The people of Thessalonica, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, right? So their walk has changed. Instead of walking in the ways of the world, they have turned to walk in the ways of God. It transforms every part of life. What, what, what this means is that Jesus is claiming authority over your life. He is claiming to be Lord over everything. It means you can't keep ownership of your life. Yeah, you're still responsible, but ultimately, you're not the owner in control of everything. That's why it's called new life. It's a new life given to you because there was a problem with your old life when you were in ownership and in control. And God is saying, it needs new direction. You need new life. So you can't keep the ownership of it. If you are, if you're in this mindset where, you're, where you are still running cost-benefit analysis of being Christian and weighing that out, 
it's a sign that you've heard the words, but the power maybe isn't yet there. The power of change may not yet be there because what you are doing in performing your cost-benefit analysis is you're still negotiating to retain control. That's one of the things that the Spirit will do and will wrestle from you. It's one of the things that you will continue to do through your Christian life and journey. Like, oh yeah, I'm grabbing control again. Oh yeah, okay, wait, I got, okay God, you're in control. And it's just back and forth. But that's part of the, it's an indicator that you are in that journey of following Jesus. But, but if, that, if that power of God comes at you demanding your life and that is unsettling to you, that's actually a good thing. Because you know you're just not creating something that you like that's for you. It's coming to you on God's terms saying, this is the deal, this is the problem, and this is your solution. You're being confronted with Jesus, the living and true God, as verse 9 said. That's a good thing. What does that look like practically? There's all kinds of things we could talk about. I'll just give you one example. As it talked about idols of the culture that they were to walk away from. In that day, much like today, sexual immorality was rampant, okay? It's just part of life in the human world. Um, So if you want to be a rebel in society, the world does what the world does. Be different. If you want to be a rebel, be, be the sex and the gender that you are at birth that God has given you. If you want to be a rebel, if you want to know if you're turning from idols to follow what the Bible says, the sexual ethics of the Bible, you might say are not fun, but they are good. Right? They're good. Are you developing conviction and repentance around those? Right? The sexual ethics are that sex is wonderful and beautiful. And it's meant to be enjoyed within the context of marriage. And there's reasons for that that we don't have time to go into deeply right now. But part of the reason for that is because what God says he has done with his people is he has married them. That's what all the Old Testament is saying. We're getting married. We're getting married. I'm taking you as my bride. That's why when you run away after other lovers, it says in the prophets, that you're committing spiritual adultery. And God is saying, no, I've made covenant to you. I stood and took vows and you did too, and you've broken yours, but I haven't broken mine, and I will forgive you, and I will take you back. In fact, I will come after you and win you back. And when I do win you back, you're going to be like, wow, I can't believe it that you've won me back. And then when Jesus comes again, there's going to be this great wedding banquet, this marriage feast of the Lamb, right? And so see, the Bible is describing what God is doing as he is coming to gather a people to take a bride for himself. And he is fundamentally and faithfully committed which is one of the reasons why it gives you the sexual ethic that it does because it's a demonstration of what you think about spiritual life. The way you live sexually demonstrates what you think about what it means for God to be faithful. So it makes sense why it's there. It's important why it's there. Do you develop conviction and repentance about that? So your walk is one evidence. Do you walk away from idols and walk in the ways of Jesus? Second thing, second piece of evidence is that your work is produced by faith, love, and hope in Jesus Christ. We saw this in verse 3, right at the beginning there where he says that he's so thankful for them and for their work produced by faith, their labor prompted by love and endurance inspired by the hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. 
what he is saying here is the way you live your life, even in the face of opposition, shows if you live by faith in Jesus. What you do at work, what you do with your friends, demonstrates if you're living by faith. And so some questions you should ask yourself are, do I do good works, the things that I do, my, my character, my life ethics, do I do those things for self-promotion? Is it focused on me or do I do those because it's what Jesus does and it's what it looks like to love him and live by faith? Another question, will I do the right thing even when it's unpopular? You know, I think suffering is the crossroads for enduring faith. It's where challenges come about. Like, okay, this is what I do and then you're challenged. You're like, okay, what am I going to do now? Opposition and suffering are the crossroads for enduring faith that Paul encourages them, continue on because you know the gospel and you're part of the family of God. Another question is this. If you are going to live by faith, love, and hope that is in Jesus Christ, here's a question. Will I love someone even when I disagree with them? Right? The Bible's going to give you all kinds of ethics and morality. And much of that is different from what the world says. And when you disagree with the world, do you just throw grenades over the wall at people? Or will you love them? Even when you disagree with them. You see, because what Jesus did, even though he came to show the way and was different than anybody else, living a life of righteousness when others wouldn't, he still loved people. He had compassion on people and loved them well. He didn't come to destroy. He came to give life and life abundantly, says John chapter 10. So we have to love people well. That needs to be a mark of what you do. Not just deciding right and wrong, but do you love well? A third piece of evidence that you are a follower of Jesus. So we had that you're going to walk away from idols and walk in the way of Jesus. The second one is your, your work is inspired by faith and love and hope in Christ. And the third one is you witness for Christ to others. We see this in verse 8. Paul tells him right there, he says, we've heard about you. The message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia, where Thessalonica is, but also in Achaia, the next region or province, next state away, if you will, and everywhere else that Paul's gone, he hears about their faith. He's encouraging them, saying, they have been spokespeople, ambassadors for the gospel. This is an important point, because a lot of people think about Christianity this way. Christianity is my personal decision. And it's about me and Jesus. No, it's not. It is your personal decision. If it were only about you and Jesus, then you don't need to be here today. None of this would matter. But that's not what Jesus said. He said it's about his community and his church. It's a personal matter. It absolutely is personal. It affects you personally. It is not private. It is meant to be exercised in community and publicly before the watching world. That's what the Bible says. If you don't like it, read it. And I'm not trying to be mean, but there is a certain reality check we have to have in life where we cater to ourselves all the time. What do I like? What do I prefer? What kind of ice cream do I want? I don't know. There's 33 flavors. I can't choose. Like, the Bible says, like, yeah, you are to be a witness. You are an ambassador 
for the king. The way you live your life and the way you talk to people. So a couple of questions. Do people who know me realize by the way I live that I'm a follower of Jesus? Ask yourself that question. Or would they be stunned to know that? Wait, what, you? Another question. Have I told someone who does not yet believe about Jesus in the past month? Have I told somebody about Jesus in the past month? Amelia, you've been planting a church. You've got to do a lot of that. A whole lot of that. Spring run who are staying here. You've got to do a whole lot of that too. Because outreach isn't like sending Amelia out to plant a church and going, oh, good, we did our thing. No. We're all ambassadors, wherever we are. Let me get on to the last point. We'll wrap up here with the fourth thing is this. The fourth piece of evidence is that you wait for Jesus to rescue you from the wrath to come. This is in verse 10. Where it says, they wait for the son who's risen from the dead, who rescues us from the coming wrath. This theme of the coming of Jesus again is repeated in every chapter in 1 Thessalonians, and it's the whole focus of chapter 5. So this future hope, this reality that Jesus is coming is to shape the way we live. And what Paul is saying to them is he's like, I'm encouraged by you because you wait looking forward to the day that Jesus comes again. But it says that he's coming in wrath. And I... Um, if you're one who is who is asking honest questions, skeptic, like skeptic but curious, right? Maybe a little, little cynical, but also very curious about this faith. One of the common things that people who are, who are in that, that phase, that, that part of the pregnancy, if you will, ask me is, you know, I just cannot accept a God of wrath. He's got to be loving. And it's a fair question to ask, but I want to ask you if you're going to take that position to apply it to everything in life. And if you can't do that, then it might be nonsensical. You may say, what do you, what do you mean? I don't understand what you mean. Let me give you an example. When a shooter walks into a crowd to massacre people, and police or anybody else stops that person violently because they have to. Is that sense of wrath against the evil being done bad? Or is it actually an act of love to stop evil? Let me just take it out of that situation that's all over news and just put it into pop culture. We love wrath. You love wrath. I know you love wrath. Because the box office says so. The Avengers. Like you know of the word vengeance. Avenging injustice. Coming to put down evil. The guardians of the galaxy. To fight against evil and injustice. This is the, this is the story. Every story of the hero is a hero coming against evil to stop it and oftentimes has to use some measure of force to do so to put down evil so unless you object to all the movies then don't object to god 
wanting to stop the bully, to stop the injustice, and to do so because it's a loving thing to do. The bigger problem, actually, than that is not the, the condemnation of God out there. It's the, condem- the condemning voice inside of you, right? Because here's the reality is that you have this voice inside of you that says things like this. You're not good enough. You're not pretty enough. You're not smart enough. You have to prove yourself. You need to do this or that to accomplish things in life, and you need people around you to approve of you. And when it doesn't happen, that voice keeps hammering at you you haven't done it. It's condemning you. You failed. You haven't measured up. You can't escape that voice, even though you try to medicate it with alcohol, weed, or prescription drugs. That voice is still there. Anxiety and depression are real. I'm not saying they're not real things, and I'm not against a good use of medicine. What I am saying is you have a voice of condemnation that haunts you, and it's because it's hardwired into your humanity that there is a thing of right and wrong. And you're always trying to measure up to whatever standard is. God's, yours, somebody else's. You will try to measure up to it. And that voice of condemnation haunts you. Your problem is not just psychological. It is deeply spiritual. The voice of condemnation wants to destroy you. The voice of conviction of the Spirit wants to save you. That's the difference there. Conviction or convincing of you is the pleading of the Spirit with you to turn to Jesus who loves you so much that he came and he suffered God's wrath, taking the condemnation for you so that you won't have to suffer it. So you know your hope is in Jesus when you can do verse 10, when you can wait on the Son who will come for the coming wrath and rescue you from it. When that's your hope, you know your hope's in Jesus. Paul will write later to the Romans, as we read in our, in our confession or assurance this morning, Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. No condemnation. The play Les Miserables with Valjean, the convicted criminal who uh, for stealing bread, is imprisoned, and his prisoner, and is only known by his prisoner number and not a name, finally gets released from prison and goes looking for food and work, and he can't find any. He goes to knock on the door of the house of a priest. The priest lets him in, gives him a place to sleep, gives him food to eat, um, takes care of him. In the middle of the night, Valjean sees all the silver in the house, and he's like, if I get this silver, I'm good. So he swipes the silver, all the silver and everything, puts it in a bag of leaves. The police catch him. They come back to the priest's door, knocking on his door. It's like in the middle of the night. And they wake up the priest, and they've caught him, and they, they drag him before the priest, and he says, hey, he, stay, he, he was with you, and he took all your silver. And the priest says to them, to the police, the silver is his, and I'm glad you found him because he forgot to take these candlesticks as well. And he gives them the candlesticks to walk away with. And his face is like, what? What? And what the priest was saying to him right there is that you've been bought at a price. And you are now free. Go live your life in light of such mercy and grace. And it changes Valjean's life forever. It's what the rest of the movie's about. 
This is how you know if you're a Christian. The power of God has come to you and you have welcomed the message of it. You've been awakened by the power of it. And your desire is you want to follow him. You won't do that perfectly. That's okay because you don't face any condemnation. You are loved by God. It's the best way to live life. I hope you know that. If you don't, I invite you to know it today. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you will help us to be people who know that we are loved by you, to live and walk in your ways. And I ask all this in the powerful name of Jesus.